Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not only hearers, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and preserves, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religious is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the word. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, if you have a Bible with you, feel free to open to the book of James. It's towards the end of your Bible. It's where we're going to be today. And uh, as evidenced by the fact that we're reaching the end of your Bible, we're almost to the end of our year of the Bible series. This year, if you've been here for a while at Grace, you know that from January to December, we've been going through Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible in honor of our church's 75th anniversary. And if you've heard this introduction 20 times over the course of the year, this is the last one I will do in this series. Uh, next week, Pastor Tim will be preaching on Revelation 5, which he'll do great on, and then Pastor Don will finish our series on Revelation 21 and 22, it's the last week of the year. Uh, on Christmas Eve, we'll, we'll be on a different theme, something about Jesus being born or something. And uh, th so this is my last chance to say thank you to you guys for going through this series of Year of the Bible with me. Some of you have read through the whole Bible, are almost to the end here, reading the whole Bible together. So thank you for jumping in on that. Some of you have done this with uh, youth ministry or with children's ministry. So really grateful to get a uh, band together as a church through this process this year. Uh, confession, I don't know if I can say this as a pastor. Um, this will be, if I, if I can finish all the way through, this will be the first time I've ever completed a year of the Bible resolution. I have started year of the Bible reading plans a lot of times in my life and gotten to like first chapter and <laughs> given up, you know. And so, you know, as long as I can find some time to get back and cover Ezekiel that I missed in the summer, um, I, I can't believe I'm actually going to finish it. So I'm grateful to your guys' accountability for that. If you struggled this year, here's what I'd recommend. One, become a senior pastor of a church. Two, <laughs> tell them to read through the whole Bible. Three, feel guilty and embarrassed if you fall behind. Four, have a baby, fall really behind. And then uh, five, repeat steps uh, one through four. Uh, <laughs> But today we are in the book of James, and um, James is one of my favorite books of the Bible, one of my favorite books, certainly of the New Testament. Uh, it's sometimes called the New Testament Proverbs. It's written by the man who was that biological half-brother of Jesus, um, who we know in English as James. In Hebrew and in Greek, he's actually Jacobus. He's where we get the name Jacob from. Um, and he opposed Jesus during most of his earthly ministry. He, uh, we see him in the Gospels saying that his brother needed to come back home and give up this itinerant ministry that he was on. But in 1 Corinthians, we read that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appears to James, leading to James making a 180 in his life, going from opposing Jesus 
to referring to him at the beginning of his letter as James, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine opening a letter saying, Bob, a slave to my sister Amy? I mean, that's just, that seems crazy, but that's the conversion that James has in his life. He's known in the early church as a leader, known for his wisdom, and his book contains so many of the things that James taught about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And one of those passages that we'll look at today in James 1 describes uh, how we're to live counterculturally with slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to anger. This is what James 1.19 says. Know this, my beloved brothers. We could probably add sisters in there as well. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, this passage, while it sounds beautiful and virtuous on the surface, flies in the face of so many things that we hear throughout the week as Americans. I mean, do we really believe that it's a good thing to be slow to speak? After all, you know, we want people to listen to what we have to say. We like verses maybe more as Americans that say, always be ready to give a reason for the hope you have, right? We want to be quick to speak, not slow to speak. We're concerned maybe that if we don't speak quickly and consistently and put up enough stuff on our social, that people are going to forget about us or ignore us or that our authentic self won't be seen or loved or cared for. And so the culture presses on us often. Find your voice. Speak out as often as possible. Don't be slow to speak. Or are we really quick to listen? You know, we live in an era of communication overload, and we feel like out of self-preservation, we have to close our ears because we already have enough expectations on us as it is. Do we really want to be quick to listen to what God has to say? Or slow to anger? Goodness. How many messages in our culture do we get every week that we should be quick to get riled up? In fact, there's whole industries that exist in order to make you angry about things. Whole media empires that goal every day is to churn out content to make people angry. Our anger helps us process pain in the world and it helps us to get people to do things. Those of us who are parents sometimes learn that while we don't like it, our anger is sometimes the only thing that will get our children moving in the morning. Right? Our anger sometimes is even seen as a virtue. You ever hear the phrase, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention? <laughs> like, we need to be quick to anger. I need to show how angry I am. The faster I can get angry, the more I can show my virtue or how I'm, how I'm on the right side of history. Well, my goal in our passage today, and sort of starting with this, is to look honestly at what James is saying. Is it a good thing to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? Well, I think, um, I think it is, and I think there's in the way that James describes it here in James 1, can really help us understand what he means. Uh, this verse, 19, is sort of the title verse of the section, and then each of the three uh, subsections of the rest of the chapter explain one of those three clauses. Here's what I mean. The first couple verses, there's a typo on your outline, verses 20 and 21, describe what it means to be slow to anger. Are we going to receive God's word with meekness, or are we going to receive it with pride? That is, when we listen to what God says, do we respond with anger or with humility? We should be slow to anger because we should see what truly matters in the world. Look at verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This is the first reason James says why we should be slow to anger. Because our righteousness doesn't come from our anger. Our anger does not work in the way that we think it should. Our anger isn't able to accomplish what we hope that it could do in our lives. So we're taking a moment to talk about what we mean by anger here. 
Um, anger, my favorite definition of anger comes from, uh, the favorite definition of anger I've come across is when we want something to start happening or we want something to stop happening. Either when we want something to start happening or stop happening. That comes from a, a prominent uh, Christian psychologist named uh, Dr. Rebecca Reet. Um, <laughs> and if you're wondering why people's laughing, that's my wife's name. Is, is that, that she is a psychologist, but she's not famous, except probably in our home. Um, but I really, I've, I've benefited from her wisdom about that a lot. Like, when do we want something to start happening or stop happening is usually when anger comes to the surface. Right, another way to put it is when we have unmet expectations, when we want people to do something or we want a situation to change and it's not meeting our expectations. So I want to come up with some examples from my life of times that I got angry. And so uh, last night happened. And um, so here are a couple of minutes, a couple of times I've gotten angry in the last 12 hours. Um, <laughs> uh, we have three kids, uh, almost five, uh, almost two, and six weeks old. They all cried last night. And by last night, I mean all last night, um, from about 1 a.m. to whenever I left this morning at 7 a.m. One of them was crying at any given moment, right? And I had an expectation. I expected that they, out of a love for their dear father and a belief in the mission of God, would sleep through the night. That was my expectation, right? <laughs> you don't have to laugh at me. Right? <laughs> um, I had an expectation that was not met, right? My kids did not behave in a way that I wanted them to behave. Now, I can laugh with you this morning, right? But in the moment, that unmet expectation was, oh, would you guys go to sleep? I have to do my thing in the morning. Um, right? And then at 3 a.m., our dogs vomited in their crate. Right? Now, I had another expectation in that moment. Right? I had an expectation that my dogs, being animals, would not make my life more difficult. Right? That expectation was not met either. And then this morning, I thought, I'll wake up with a hot shower, and my hot water heater didn't work. Right? <laughs> And I had an expectation. I had an expectation that stuff would not break in my home, right? <laughs> that the things, the appliances I have would work when I wanted them to work. So what's, the, what, what, what's my point here, right? Uh, my point is, is don't ask God for sermon illustrations. No, um, <laughs> no, 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 honestly, my point, for, for your benefit, I hope, is that when our expectations are unmet, anger can often come to the surface. And we may not even be aware of what those expectations are. They may not be rational expectations, right? Like, it's not rational to expect uh, a baby to not cry in the night, right? It's not rational to expect your dogs to never vomit. It's not rational to expect things to never break. But those were my expectations in that moment. And the lack of them being met leads to anger. Um, sometimes you guys experience this in your relationships, your friendships, with your parents, with your uh, roommates, maybe at school, or those of you guys who are college students who are back for winter break. Um, maybe you experience it in your marriage, those guys who are married or, or dating, when you have expectations on the other person, and maybe you didn't even know you had those expectations and they're not meeting them, and uh, you find yourself mad at them, you're like, why am I mad at you right now? And then you realize, oh, it's because there's some expectation that you're not meeting for me. Now, some of these are momentary expectations. They're what Beck and I call 20-minute problems. They're problems that make us mad in the moment, but we just say, okay, in 20 minutes, this vomit will be cleaned up. In 20 minutes... Uh, one of these kids will stop crying. In, in 20 minutes, I'll forget that that person cut me off on the road. In 20 minutes, I'll just resolve this bill and not have to think about it anymore. And I just need to, to get to that 20 minutes, right? But um, not all of them are 20-minute problems, of course. Right? Some of them are 20-year problems. 
Some of you, you know, your anger problem is not, you know, you're you're able to handle it fine. You're not known as a fit of anger person about 20-minute problems. But some of you might, there might be a stewing of anger over 20-year problems that, frankly, you have a right to be angry about, right? When you think about the marriage that ended when your spouse left you, you know, you had an understandable expectation that he or she would fulfill their marriage vows, and they didn't, right? And you're angry about that. You experience sexism or racism or ageism, and it damages your life. And you had an expectation, a, a good expectation, that your gender or your race or your age would be seen at worst as a neutral thing, and at best something to be celebrated. And you're angry that it's not. And, and there's nothing wrong with that anger. Let me just be as clear as I can be about that. Anger is a, an emotion. It's not a problem. Right? Anger is an emotion. It's an indicator light of something. In Ephesians, it says that we are to be angry and do not sin. The question is, what do we do with that anger? Scripture actually has a term for just anger. It's called righteous anger. And there's some things that we need to be angry about. But there's a problem with how our anger can express itself. And James highlights in an incredibly wise way one of the things that we need to notice, which is are we quick to run to anger or are we slow to run to anger? Because I don't know about you, but in those moments when I get angry that I'm embarrassed about later, it's because I move there too quickly. My expectation wasn't met, and I go, "Uh, would you guys all just shut up? And then I go, why did I say that to the church during a sermon? (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you know, like, of course that's going to happen. Of course that expectation's not going to be met, right? But if we move slowly rather than quickly into anger, there's time to evaluate whether this comes from a place of righteousness or a place of selfishness. You can think of anger like electricity. Electricity directed in the right way can be very productive. I mean, think about all the wonderful things in your life that are fueled by electricity. They can be used for light bulbs and dishwashers and hot water heaters that break. And Not that I'm bitter. Um, But electricity, when it's uncontrolled, it can destroy things. You know, electricity in your walls, you know, if it's frayed, even if it's only frayed to some degree, can cause a fire and destroy your whole home, right? The very electricity that promised to make things productive can destroy. Same thing's true with anger, right? Anger without the fruit of the Spirit, anger that's bent in on itself, anger that is self-serving rather than productive for the benefit of others can destroy people around us. And some of you have been around people that are angry like that, or some of you might have an anger problem like that. Sometimes Christians will ask the question, am I allowed to be angry? And it's an understandable question. The answer is yes, right? We see anger as an attribute that God displays, that Jesus displays, that the Spirit displays. But the question James is asking is a little bit different one, is what's going to happen as a result of your anger? Is your anger going to do something that helps others? And James in verse 20 says, your anger will never make anyone righteous. Your anger cannot produce the very thing that you long for. Like, if you say, I have righteous anger, James says, well, your anger can't produce the righteousness of God. Your anger at yourself can't make you righteous, right? That's, that's, that's really important, right? No matter, no manner of being angry at yourself will make you a better person or a better Christian. No matter of yelling at yourself, negative self-talk, saying, Reet, you got to get it together. What's your problem, you idiot? Like, that's never going to create righteousness. Anger at your enemies is never going to create righteousness. You can't yell someone into righteousness. You can't yell your kids into righteousness. You can't yell your spouse into righteousness. You can't yell people on Facebook into righteousness. 
Like, it does not happen. And you know why I'm confident in that, besides what verse 20 says? Think about the time that Jesus was angry in the Gospels. What comes to mind? There's a few different examples, but one usually comes to people's mind. Flipping tables in the temple, right? Yeah. Shortly before Jesus is crucified, we read in three of the Gospels that he goes into the temple and he sees how they're using it as a place of financial gain and he gets angry. He makes a whip, he turns over the, temple, over the tables and he says, my father's house was to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Jesus is angry. Okay, can we all agree this is righteous anger, right? That what Jesus is doing. He has a reason to be angry. He is perfect. This is the best expression of anger that humanity can hope for. What happens as a result? Does anyone repent? Do any of the Sadducees come to him and say, you are right. <laughs> oh, we were wrong. Can we follow you now? Right? That does not happen. Right? Even the anger of Jesus does not produce righteousness. And if that doesn't work, your anger isn't going to work either. Right? It may lead to acquiescence in the moment, it may lead to a cowering spouse, but it does not lead to the thing that you want in your deepest self as a Christian, which is the righteousness of God for you and for the people that you care for. That's a humbling thing. By the way, the good news of that, uh, this is just a sort of an aside, what happens to the temple, right? It, it's not solved by Jesus' act of anger in the moment. But four days later, when Jesus is crucified on the cross for your sins and my sins, the anger of God, the wrath of God, rests on Jesus as he takes on the sins of the world. And what happens to the temple then? The veil is torn, and Jesus says that in his body, when it's resurrected from the grave, is the new temple of which he is the chief cornerstone. It is the anger of God that cleanses the temple, not the anger of man. Anyway, that's for another sermon for another day. James says that we should be slow to anger, not just because it won't work, but also because there's something better available to us. In verse 21, he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and instead receive with meekness the, the implanted word, which is able to receive your souls. You can't get to righteousness through anger, but you can get to it through humbly and meekly receiving the gospel. As we receive the word that God announces to us, when James here probably means the gospel message itself, we get the very thing that our, hung, their, that our anger longs for. So let me ask you, do you have an anger problem? Or let me ask your spouse, does, does he have an anger problem, right? <laughs> now this is going to be so contextual, right? What, what is an anger problem, right? If I had your life experience, maybe I'd be way more angry than you are. Or if I if I was your gender or your age, or your generation or your culture or your family background, right? Like, I come from a German Scandinavian background. Like, let me show you anger. Oh, okay, so that's, that's anger right there. I just, I'm sorry you had to see me that way. <laughs> but so, so my point is I, I can't, you know, we can't lay on one size fits all for anger. Uh, because it depends on your life experience, it depends on the privilege you've experienced, it depends on so many different things, whether it'll look like anger from the outside. But to you, from the inside, do you feel like as you read James 19, that there is a, a fit there between your being slow to anger? Or is the truth, like, no one may see it, people may think I'm a nice person, but like, inside there is a deep rage over unmet expectations from people around me, deep rage towards God from unmet expectations and his, from him towards me? 
Now, if you can solve that with uh, mindfulness or breathing practices, or you can limit it at least uh, through some of those things, or going to an anger management class, or uh, getting a good app on your phone or whatever, like do those things. That'll help you. That'll help the people around you. It'll help you harm your brothers and sisters in Christ and your family, um, help you prevent harming them in a way that, that, that can be beneficial. But James is saying something more fundamental to us as Christians. He's saying that if you have the salvation of your souls, you have the real deep problems solved. And anger is a uh, momentary blip in light of the next 10,000 years. Like, there are 20-year problems. There are 50-year problems and 100-year problems that you have a right to feel angry about. And you should feel angry about as a Christian. But as a Christian, it's in the context of knowing that we have the salvation of our soul secured in Christ. And that our anger is a uh, bridge, it's not the whole song. James says that our posture is to be slow to anger, but instead to be quick to listen to the word that God implants in us and to be doers of the word. Verse 22 says, not hearers only. And in one of the scariest lines to me in the book of James, he says, be doers, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Do you and I do what God's word says or do we just hear it, forget it, and assume the best about ourselves? When we listen to God's word, it is only the beginning of the journey. It's the directions, but it's not the journey itself. I'm worried about this for my heart and for your heart at the end of this year of the Bible because we can be under the illusion sometimes at the end of our Bible reading during the week or at the end of a sermon or at the end of a series to think, well, we've done it. We have accomplished it as if reading the Bible itself is the end of the journey, but it's only the directions for the journey. Any of you guys make a Christmas lists of gifts that you want to buy other people, or you have a list, of, someone has given you a list, a child maybe, or a presumptive spouse or something, of like, here's what I want for Christmas. Can you imagine if you just wrote down on the card, like, nice sweater, Legos, PS4, 5? I don't know what they're on now. Um, 4, okay. <laughs> uh, and then you just put that, like, you put it in like a gift bag, and you say, here, like, I, here, I heard what you wanted, and I wrote it down, and that's the, that's the end of it, right? Like, no, 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 that's not it, right? You have to actually buy the Christmas gifts. Like, if you open an Ikea thing of furniture, and you lay out all the pieces, and you read the directions, and then just say, amen, and then you close it, <laughs> and you just put it away, that does not count, right? That, that is not the goal. And yet, so often we do that, right? We hear God's word, we read it, we study it, we even love it. And then we fail to act on it at times. And what James is saying, and here's the warning, is the more we do that, the more we are prone to do that. The more we habituate ignoring God's word. The more we listen to God's word and fail to act on it, we become self-deceived. This is a warning for any of us who have been Christians for a while. Because we can start to hear God's word and assume the best about ourselves rather than the truth about ourselves. I asked some people this week in our church, hey, what do Christians like you uh, struggle with actually living out? Like, what do you notice about yourselves or about other people where scripture commands action and we fail to act? Here's some of the things people said. Uh, the importance of caring for the poor. The importance of sharing our faith evangelistically. The importance of living with holiness in our sexuality. The importance of restraining from gossip or coveting. The importance of practicing generosity without recognition the importance of Sabbath-keeping. And you guys can add, the list can go on and on and on. 
And we hear that, and if we've learned to ignore that voice, we've learned to deal with that noise, we can begin to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and say, well, I meant to. Like, I was going to get around to that at some point. I did it in the past. I totally remember. There was this time 25 years ago that I did that once, and I figured I was good from then on. Or, you know, we did something here, right? Like, we, someone did, I, I met, someone passed around a card for them for their birthday, right? Like, we did it. In football, I was, a, I was a bad football player in high school, and we had a phrase called film don't lie, right? Film don't lie. Whatever they show on Saturday morning or Monday morning or whenever, that's the truth of what happened in the game. And uh, I was not good at recognizing that. I, I always had excuses of like, well, I'm, I meant to block that guy. <laughs> or, uh, you know, I, I knew I was supposed to block that guy. Or I can see how blocking him would have resulted in you not getting a concussion. And, uh, <laughs> sorry, that's too on the nose. Um, but really, at the end, the film didn't lie, right? Either you blocked him or you didn't. And I wonder about the film of your life, like the, the film of the last year, last couple years. Like Those of you guys who are Christians, who say you follow Jesus, who say you want to live in obedience to Scripture, like what does the film show of your life? James says in verse 23, anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and he goes away and at once he forgets what he was like. James is telling us to watch out. The more you hear God's word and ignore it, you are going to deaden your conscience until the point that you're going to have a goldfish's memory of Scripture. You're going to look at it, and a moment later, you're going to forget what you've eaten. Disobedience is going to create and habituate this forgetfulness. And we need tools to combat that sort of self-deception. And the best tool, James says, is to look into the perfect law, the law of liberty. That's his beautiful way of describing the gospel message. And persevere. That's what he says in verse 25. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, and he will be blessed in his doing. You and I need to persevere. Or if I can paraphrase that another way, you and I need to do it even if we're bad at it. You and I need to carry out God's word even if it's incomplete, <coughs> even if we're uh, embarrassed by how we are haphazard in it. But we need to keep moving in the same direction. Like the person who runs the 10K very, very slowly, but is lapping the person on the couch you need to move in that direction, right? Have you ever gone to the gym and you look around and you feel like everyone is going to watch me do 10 pounds on the bench press right now? But that's like, that's all I can do, right? This is, this is it. I hope no one notices, right? But, but I'm going to move in that direction with the hope that one day I'll be able to do more or be stronger. James says the same thing is true of us as Christians, right? We need to hear and act and persevere on God's word. And in the midst of that, we need to be slow to speak, this is the third point. This is the end of our time. Our religion needs to lead us not to empty talk, but to meaningful action. Be slow to speak. Now, uh, James, in the rest of his book, is going to talk about the importance of paying attention to how we speak to one another all the time. Uh, the value and the destructiveness that can come from our tongue. How we can build one another up or destroy one another. But in this part of the passage, in this part of James, he's talking especially of speaking, being slow to speak about our own virtue. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James is going to set up a contrast in these last couple of verses between the person who talks about how good his faith is and the person who acts on his faith. He's going to say the person who wants to make much of what he or she has done so that other people can hear, their religion is worthless. 
But the person who acts on their faith, that represents what God desires for you and for me. In this case, the tongue here, the, the speaking, the unbridled tongue represents the person who wants to brag so that others will hear. It's similar to what his half-brother, Jesus, had said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, if you give so that others will see, you've received your reward in full. If you pray so that others can hear, then God doesn't listen. Essentially, James is saying, show me, don't just tell me, show me. It's like in our day, the person who's been on a diet for four days and wants to lecture you about carbs, and you're like, dude, just like make it through one Taco Tuesday before you tell me this lecture, right? Like, show me, don't tell me. And this is what James means by show me. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He's, there's, there's a lot of moral admonitions in James, not just these two, but in these two, he forms a, a beautiful couplet that shows what it's like to live a life of faith before God that we move towards something, like we, we act with, with care and compassion towards the people who don't have resources to care for themselves. In that culture, that would be the orphans and the widows. And we act with abstention from the things that are going to harm our relationship with God. So we're going to move towards in one direction, what God calls us to do, and we're going to move away in the other direction from the things God calls us to abstain from. And I love that he puts these two together because, let's be honest, in our culture, we kind of separate these two, right? We kind of say one side of the political aisle is kind of about the social action, and the other side is kind of about personal holiness. And James says, no, they go together, right? They go together. That the, that the true gospel virtue cares for the person who has no resources to care for themselves. As Paul will say in Ephesians, we ourselves were fatherless and hopeless in this world apart from Christ. And so we care for the orphan and the widow, the one who doesn't have the resources or opportunities or security that others might have, and in so doing, we represent how God loves us. By the way, if you feel like, Bob, I don't even know where I would do that, how I would do that, I would love for you to get involved with one of our compassion partners. This is really a guiding principle for a lot of the compassion partners that our church works with. How can we help show Christ's love to people who don't have the resources, security, or opportunities that other people have? So whether it's Precious Life Shelter, Precious Land Preschool, the Long Beach Rescue Mission, World Relief for Others, these are great organizations for you to live out James 127 in action. And we're going to have a special uh, day devoted to that in a couple months to give you a chance to hear about some of these and, and get involved in them in action. But it's not just about what we're to do, it's also what we're to abstain from, that we're to be set free from the slavery of sin, and so we live unstained by the world as well. All right, well, I, I'm going to end there. Um, I don't want to be responsible for any more parking tickets. Uh, okay, essentially two options in your life and in my life. Like, are you going to be slow to anger? Are you going to be slow to speak? And are you going to be quick to listen? Or do you say, no, I'm going to be quick to anger. Like, I, I want to reserve that for myself. I want to be moving that direction, even if it harms people around me and isn't productive. Are you willing to be quick to listen to what God calls you to, or how he calls you to live, and live in light of that? Or are you going to be say, no, God, you're going to have to really hit me over the head with a two-by-four to get my attention? And are you going to be slow to speak? Or do you feel like out of fear you have to tout your own virtues or no one will pay attention to you? Well, these are difficult questions to evaluate honestly about ourselves. It's, it's easy to say, well, I'm sure I'm doing pretty well. But it's, it's another thing to really examine our heart, examine our conscience, and say, God, would you show me the truth in light of grace, in light of the fact that you died on the cross for my sins, that you raised from the third day, 
that I believe in you, that I, I'm going to spend eternity with you. Would you just show me the truth of what I'm like? So we want to spend a couple minutes here before the end of our time uh, where Pastor Justin and the band's going to come up and they're going to lead us through a prayer of examine. Uh, this is based on a, a very ancient set of prayers from Ignatius of Loyola, but it's a really helpful regular practice to go through to think about what is the film show about my life. So uh, Pastor Justin's going to come up with the band and, and lead us through this time. Let's pray together. Jesus, help us to listen to you. Help us to be quick to listen and slow to speak, especially about ourselves. God, help us to be slow to become angry. Not never becoming angry, but slow to move in that direction. God, I pray for my friends here uh, who struggle with these things, uh, just like I do. Help us to act in ways that reflect the truth of the gospel, the truth of your love for us, the truth of uh, our confidence and faith in you. Give us a hunger to act in faith rather than to speak hypocritically. Give us a, uh, a reception of your, of your word with humility and conviction. It's in your name we pray. Amen.